Located in the heart of vibrant Austin, Texas Law offers its students academic excellence, affordability, and robust support, plus professional opportunities upon graduation. And today we're speaking with its Dean of Admissions, so plug in your earbuds. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Thanks for joining me for this, the 546th episode of Mission Straight Talk. Are you applying to law school this cycle? Are you planning ahead to apply to law school next year or later? Are you competitive at your target programs? Accepted's Law School Admissions Quiz can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash law dash quiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but you'll also get tips on how to improve your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, take this short quiz at exhibit.com slash law quiz to obtain your free assessment. Now, for today's interview, I'm delighted to have on Admission Straight Talk, Matthew Lay, Assistant Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at the University of Texas School of Law. A native of Texas, Dean Lay earned his bachelor's from the University of Texas at Austin and his JD from Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Prior to joining UT Law, Dean Lay was the Assistant Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at the University of Washington School of Law for almost a decade. He has held numerous national service and leadership positions, including serving as a member of LSAC's Board of Trustees. Dean Lay firmly believes in the value of a public education and has a deep commitment to providing access for education to underrepresented groups and helped co-found the National Asian Pacific American Pre-Law Conference, now associated with the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association Annual Convention. Dean Lay, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Thank you so much, Linda. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to speak with you today. All right, let's start with a very basic question. Can you give an overview of the more distinctive qualities or elements of the UT Austin Law JD program? Sure, absolutely. Well, one of the things that I always like to start off telling students that makes UT special really come from a place of three colors. The first of which is the city of Austin. Uh, Austin is one of the fastest growing cities in the country and continues to be a city that is grounded in a vibrant music and entertainment culture. Uh, many people know that there's been an infusion of major tech companies like Amazon, Google, Oracle, and Tesla, and combined with cultural offerings uh, here, it's just a wonderful pit stop for many students who will come to law school for three years here in Austin and then decide to go elsewhere. You know, a little bit about the Texas legal market in general is that it's very healthy. It's very robust. In the state of Texas, we have, you know, several major markets, Houston, of course, you know, Dallas, and then San Antonio as well. Houston is the fourth largest city in the country and uh, is known to be sort of the energy capital of the world. And so if many, many of our graduates will end up in the city of Houston upon graduation. And then Dallas is ninth uh, in terms of the largest city in the country. And their legal market is a little bit more diverse than sort of uh, Houston's focus on energy. But even then, you know, combined those two cities with the city of Austin, which of course is the capital city of one of the largest states in the country, you know, 
the proximity to government agencies, nonprofits, public interest organizations, you know, government agencies, all of the above. There's a lot of opportunity in the great state of Texas. So, you know, I think the city itself makes UT uh, quite attractive and very distinctive in, in many respects. But in addition to the location of the law school, what I also think sets UT apart from other programs is the way that we have focused a lot of our attention on building the community here at UT. One of those features that we have uh, as part of our uh, onboarding of our incoming cohort is what we describe as the society program. The society program was created back in 2004 in combination with our faculty and our student affairs team. And it's really from a place of ensuring that students' experience in law school, of course, is uh, academic, but also social and fun, right? Uh, we know that law school is built on a foundation of relationships and friendships and lifelong professional relationships. And so how do you navigate law school in a way that, of course, is focused on your academics, but also ensures an experience that can be as fun as law school should be as fun, right? So the society program, so what we do uh, for the incoming cohort is we divide the students in the traditional academic sections, but we then further divide the students into smaller cohorts named after an important figure here at the law school. And each of the cohorts have a society coordinator, a faculty advisor, and two deans fellows whose charge is to plan activities to ensure that uh, the cohort and the society will, again, ease into the law school culture and the process uh, to the best of their ability, right, to, to, uh, to have a seamless transition, if you will. And so the society program, at the end of the third year, we love to survey our students, and many of our students will come back and say that the society program was truly one of the most memorable experiences that they've had in law school. And it is really a lifesaver in many respects because many of our students are first-generation students who, you know, don't have access to faculty members or lawyers. And, and it's just a wonderful way to connect our incoming class with uh, a community here at the law school. In addition to the society program, I would say another distinctive feature of UT is that we want to help students, again, navigate you know, the law school experience in a way that will help them academically, but also professionally as well. The mentorship program is something that we are so proud of. I don't know many law schools that have hired a full-time dedicated staff member whose job is to develop a comprehensive mentorship program. And we're so lucky to have Remy Ratliff, who is a graduate of Texas Law, to help us build a comprehensive program. And there are four mentorship programs under the mentorship umbrella. The primary one is our incoming 1L mentorship program. While it's not required of our students, it is uh, strongly encouraged. And I would say, you know, 98 to 99% of the incoming students will participate in, in the 1L mentorship program. The idea behind the 1L mentorship program is to connect the students with someone who is practicing in the Austin area, to give them face-to-face, you know, -to, -face, to develop a relationship, to help the students navigate 
uh, of course, the law school experience, and then help them, you know, have conversations about what you should anticipate in the first year summer. How do you plan your second year courses? You know, what are the things that you need to be anticipating in your upper division years here at the law school? That's a little bit distinct than our 2L mentorship program, where, of course, students now have a better idea of what it is that they want to do and perhaps where they want to end up. And so the 2L mentorship program is a continuation of the 1L program uh, with the distinction that it doesn't have to be an alumni mentor who is situated in the city of Austin. So many of our graduates will want to practice outside of the great state of Texas, you know, maybe DC, New York. And so we also have a summer mentorship program for uh, students who want to enter into those uh, jurisdictions, because we know that connecting with someone in the community, starting the legwork, uh, connecting them with, you know, uh, law firms and hiring partners, that's part of a feature that uh, the summer mentorship program has. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the transfer mentorship program. We have a number of students who transfer into uh, UT and, you know, we connect to those students uh, who come in as a transfer with other alumni who perhaps transferred into the program as well. So as you can see, it's pretty comprehensive when it comes to the mentorship program and something that we're quite proud of. And again, it's, it's really from a place of helping our students navigate this daunting thing that's called law school. As I mentioned, many of our students are first-generation students who don't have access to attorneys, and this is their first interaction uh, with an attorney, uh, knowing how to navigate uh, the networking process, because one of the things that I think colleges still don't do a good job on is helping students understand what networking is about, how to network, how to do, you know uh, navigate those relationships, and the mentorship program has been instrumental in helping students excel in, in that space, so... That's our mentorship. It sounds like, like you, you know, you're you have different forms of mentoring. You have social mentoring. I assume there's academic mentoring also. But what you, from what your your comments, it's social mentoring and as well as professional mentoring. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. And I think it's a, a different way of thinking about the law school experience. I think traditionally law school has been so focused on the doctrinal courses, ensuring students had that foundation in law. And over the years, there's been more of a focus on clinical experience and experiential learning. And of course, that's very important as well. But I think this day and age, students are interested in other parts of their experience in, in their education, right? And I think it's a carryover from what students have experienced on the college level. You know, it's not just going to classes. It's also how do you develop these uh, soft skills that are also important in the professional world? And so I think a lot of schools, including us, have uh, really been mindful in hearing what students are saying. You know, they want more than just the educational experience. And uh, they know that coming to UT Law, they're going to get a strong foundation in the academics. But what more can we do? And that's where the society program, the midterm program really come into play. Great. Thank you for that answer. Now, you mentioned that not all graduates of UT Law stay in the great state of Texas. They go throughout the country. Where do most graduates go in terms not just of geography, but also in terms of career focus and firm size? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I often get this question when I meet a student who doesn't come from the great state of Texas, right? <laughs> Students will say, well, you know, I'd love to come to Austin for three years, but will I be stuck in Texas? You know, I'm not sure if I want to end up staying in here. And the reality is that, of course, we just do well in our backyard. We are the best law school for a thousand miles, you know, east and west. And so, from our view, if you want to stay in the great state of Texas, then you're going to really position yourself quite favorably. But for those students who decide not to stay here, New York tends to be the largest jurisdiction where our graduates will end up, in part because of our focus on you know the corporate law space. And then outside of New York, California and D.C. actually compete for that third position. But I would say New York has been consistently that second jurisdiction and uh, D.C. sometimes one year and then California another year. And they kind of flip flop just depending on the number of students that we end up entering into those markets. So the reality, though, is we have graduates who are entering other markets as well, not just those major markets. I would say the breakdown ends up being about 70% who end up staying in Texas upon graduation, and then the remainder will decide to go elsewhere. As far as practice areas, um, the vast majority of students still end up in the private practice. I think roughly 60, uh, more than 60% of our graduates will end up in the, in the firms, uh, many of whom end up in the large law firms. Uh, we do have a growing number of students who enter into public interest, government, of course, because of our access to the capital city and uh, just government agencies and nonprofits in, in the area. So students will end up staying close to, to Austin. And then we have a growing number of students that end up doing clerkships. Uh, it tends to have around 13 to 15%. Vast majority of students doing clerkships will end up doing federal clerkships, and that tends to be in the upper 80% range. So if you really want to position yourself in terms of clerkships, I truly believe there's no better place than Texas law to start your start start your professional career. All right, great. Thank you. Now, let's let's turn our attention more to the application side. Sure. Um, for this year's applicants, when is the best time to apply? I am of the mindset that early is always better, but what does early really mean? I would say great that question. If- <laughs> yeah, if there's another application by the end of the calendar year, that's certainly very early. And I think you are positioning yourself favorably because uh, we do start reviewing applications uh, for our early decision candidates. We do prioritize. And so we have two pathways, the early decision and then the regular decision. For early decision, that deadline is November 1st, and we prioritize the, the reading of those applications in early October. And then the regular decision folks will start reviewing those applications in December. You have to realize that many law schools will have holiday winter breaks uh, uh, in December. And so we are only uh, in the office for the first couple of weeks and then everyone goes on vacation and then they come back in January. But by getting your application in by the end of the calendar year, once we return back from the holiday break, uh, we are really hitting the ground running when it comes to the application review process. And so, you know, I think that's really a good time to apply. Even though our application isn't due until March 1st, I would say that if you're planning to submit your application at the end of February or even by March 1st, I would not consider that to be early. And that's not to say that students are putting themselves in a disadvantage. It's just that 
you know, you have to realize that we're making many decisions uh, up front and, you know, things tend to get more complicated as you get closer to the application deadline. Uh, but my general advice is if you can get it in by the end of the calendar year, that would be really beneficial to you. But also at the end of the day, don't submit an application early just for the sake of submitting it in early. You want right. to put your best foot forward. So if you don't have the LSAT score or GRE score uh, that you're really looking for, or it's not your best showing in terms of your GPA, it's better to wait to submit an application that is your strongest application than to submit a subpar application early. So I would certainly keep that in mind as well as you're deciding when to submit an application. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's fantastic advice. I have a rule I've been touting for almost 30 years now, and it's submit your application as soon as possible, provided, and provided is always in caps if I write it out, you don't compromise the quality. Absolutely. Right. Now, UT Law accepts the LSAT and the GRE. Are you finding that the GRE is equally predictive of future success in law school? I don't know how, how many years you've been doing that, but have you been able to test that out or do you have enough numbers to test it out even? That's a good question. And we we started to accept the GRE in 2018, beginning in that oh, cycle. All right. So that's a while, while now. Yeah, it's been a while, but truth be told, I think it's been a couple of years. Uh, it really took a couple of years before we started to see some traction with the GRE. And I think part of the reason why is that students were still trying to figure out, well, which one do I take? And I, you know, I'm not sure if, you know, I want to disadvantage myself by taking the GRE and not taking the LSAT because the vast majority of schools at the time, you know, still were accepting the LSAT and not many were accepting the GRE. We don't have enough data, truth be told, to decide whether or not the GRE is equally predictive. Uh, that first year when we started to accept the GRE, I don't believe anyone came in with the GRE. It took at least a couple of years before we got maybe two people with the GRE. And even then, that's not a statistical number in which we could say, okay, with great confidence that the GRE is on the same playing field with the LSAT. At the end of the day, however, I would say that the GRE and the LSAT are, is only one factor among the entire rest of the application, you know, and that's what we're really trying to get a sense for is, is the candidate prepared for the academic rigors of law school? So while a score may be a high GRE, a GRE or a high LSAT, that alone is not going to be determinative on whether you're going to be admitted or not. So, but to answer your question, I just don't think we have enough data to decide whether or not it has any predictive value in the same way that we know that the LSAT does. How would you advise applicants to choose between the LSAT and the GRE? I mean, if they're applying only to law schools that accept both tests. Obviously, if they apply to law schools that, that will only take the LSAT, they have to take the LSAT. But what if they're applying to all law schools that will accept either one? How would you advise an applicant to choose? Yeah, you know, in general, what I have told students is that you want to position yourself in the best way possible for the admissions committee. I think 
When the GRE was introduced into the admissions process for law schools, it was really from a place of how do we provide access to other programs and other students for whom, you know, may have been in other disciplines, students who might have been in the public affairs program or the MBA program. And so to offer more access to the law school experience, the GRE or other test would be beneficial. So I would say if a student is thinking about doing a dual degree and is interested in sort of, uh, I guess, diversifying their legal education and, and maybe take uh, classes in other uh, programs at the, at the university, then the GRE might be more beneficial to that candidate. But, uh, you know, at the same time, you got to choose what you think is going to best characterize your academic potential. And they're two very different tests. You know, we know that the LSAT is geared for the law school experience. There's no other test like it. The GRE is more interdisciplinary, right? And so it's different in that respect. And so that, that would be my general advice. Right. Okay. That, that, that's very helpful. Now, turning to the personal statement, should the personal statement for Texas law address why the applicant wants to go to law school? Or can it be, I think the language on your side, can it be about backgrounds, interests, and experiences that are not necessarily directly related to law, but maybe more about the individual's journey to date? What would you, what would you say? I would say if you're able to do both, then I would encourage you to do both. Okay. I think those are the best essays, truly, you know, to share more about your background, your interest and your experiences, and then figure out how to tie it into why you're pursuing law. I think there are some candidates for whom we know that law school was the most logical trajectory in the next step for them, right? Uh, and sometimes students don't have to be explicit in their personal statement as to why they're pursuing law. There are other candidates for whom it's going to take us a little bit more uh, to understand why they might be pursuing law. Uh, perhaps someone who's been working in a particular industry for a number of years and then have decided to, to pivot uh, to go to law school. I know that the faculty and the admissions committee would be interested in that question as to why is the student you know, applying to law school now. So I would advise that candidate to be more explicit in their personal statement to say, well, and this is why I plan, you know, want to go to law school. But again, I think if you can tie your background and your interest as to, you know, the motivations for going to law, I think that's wonderful. And I think you're really giving the admissions committee enough to understand your personal and professional experiences, but also the motivations on why you're pursuing law. And being also demonstrating uh, communication skills and writing skills in the process. If you can tie it all together effectively, it's a, it's a good piece. Any advice uh, for the optional material that is a part of the Texas law application? When should applicants take advantage of those opportunities to share more information? I'm a huge fan of students submitting optional statements in part because you have to remember that students don't have the ability to sit in front of the admissions committee and ask us questions. We can't ask you questions and we can't have a conversation with them. And so if there's more for a student to share with the admissions committee, by all means, you know, use the optional materials as an opportunity to share those things that you may not have been able to, to express in other parts of your application. 
we recognize that the application materials are limiting in many respects. You know, for us, we limit the personal statement to two pages, 11 point font, one inch margins. And that's not a lot of real estate to share everything that I'm sure that you want to share with us. And so the optional materials is really that place where you can say, you know, I may have talked about this in my personal statement, but there are other parts of me that I think may be of interest to you as you're making the decision, right? So I would say it can only be an advantage, you know, for you and uh, it can only help you and not necessarily hurt you. Have the applicants give you more reasons to accept them, right? Exactly. Okay. How do you go through an application and evaluate? What's the process at Texas Law? Oh, that's a great question. One of the things that I underscore when I train our faculty admissions committee is I say we start off with the electronic application. You know, I don't know if students really know this, but on our end, what we receive are essentially two documents uh, electronically, the electronic application and the CASP report. And then, of course, any additional materials that the student may have submitted but we start off with the electronic application in part because I don't want the committee to make a decision just on an LSAT and a GPA, which is in the CAST report. In the electronic application will be your personal statement, will be your resume, will be any of the optional materials that you've submitted to us. And I really want to start there because I think that's how students really get their foot into the door here. Students have spent their precious time, uh, energy, money to submit an application to us. And I really want to focus on, you know, what does the student have to share with the committee, right? And so that's why we start there. Of course, that's not to say that the academics don't matter as well. And so, you know, that's where then we go to the CAS report. And for those who don't know, the CAS report has all of the transcripts that you submitted to LSAC. They process them, uh, the letters of recommendations, and we require two letters of recommendations, and then the writing sample that you would have submitted along with your LSAT. And so we do that analysis, you know, second, in part because one, it's so hard to read the transcripts. It's not my favorite thing to do. Uh, <laughs> Thankfully, LSAC, they provide a summary report, you know, where we get a lot of the uh, detailed analysis. And so that's how the uh, application review process operates here at the law school. And after, so I assume that individual members of the committee review the electronic application, the CAS report, and then how many people typically review it, two or three or... So we have administrative reviewers first, those who are staffed in the admissions office. And then, mm -hmm. we, oh gosh, I think at least five or six admissions oh, wow. or faculty members. Uh, don't call me exactly on that number, but sure. uh, yeah, it's around there. Okay. Okay, great. Um, I see that interviews are sometimes part of the process. Are all admitted applicants interviewed? If not, who is invited to interview? Sure. Uh, so we do have an interview process. We've had one uh, since I've been here at the law school and I started here back in 2018. I think uh, the law school had adopted the interview process maybe a year or two years before I, my arrival. And it has been just so helpful in the admissions process. You know, I've been doing this for nearly two decades now and things start to look the same, right? You know, personal statements, resumes. And, and so I'm all about how can we innovate and uh, have the application process evolve. And the interviews have really add so much more flavor to a candidate's profile because, 
you know, there's more to a student and than their two-dimensional materials and their personal statement and their resume. We have switched over our vendor uh, recently, uh, but in the past, we had a vendor where we had a limited number of license, so we had to be very judicious about who we you know, could invite to participate in the asynchronous interview. Uh, but since we've moved over to a new platform, the hope is that we will be able to invite more students to uh, participate in the interview process. Uh, but to answer the second part of your question, it's not required of the students who are admitted. Uh, I would say just because you've been asked to interview is not a guarantee of admission. And just because you didn't get an interview doesn't mean that you're not going to be admitted. So uh, it's just been uh, an addition to the overall application process that we've had here at the law school. And I'm excited to see uh, what's to come in this coming year. Okay, so you plan to expand it, but it is UT Law's option, right? It's not like a student can say, oh, I'm going to be on campus. Could I be interviewed? It's at your invitation, correct? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We have a bank of questions that we uh, have students uh, respond to. There are four questions, one of which is a written question, and they're randomized uh, right. based on the bank of questions. And we're trying to get an assessment of the students' communication skills, their presentation, and just how they think on their feet, you know? So sure. I know a lot of students really stress about the interview, but it's really from a place of, you know, of wanting to know more about the student. And they're not questions that you should be surprised, you know? <laughs> you know, we're not going to ask you to analyze a complicated SCOTUS case or anything like that. It's really questions that you should probably anticipate. All right. Um, are you at all concerned about the impact of chat GPT and AI, um, specifically the, the essays? That's a good question. You know, we've been having some internal discussions about the impact of chat GPT. And in the midst of everything that transpired with, you know, the, the SCOTUS case, you know, this summer, it seemed that the conversation around AI and artificial intelligence really kind of crept up on us. And it just showed me that... Uh, Many institutions of higher education are so behind the students, right? <laughs> um, we don't have a policy position around that, you know, at this point. Uh, my sense is that students understand what we are expecting is something that is genuine and authentic to them. And we are very capable of identifying when someone who is just giving us surface level stuff. I can't imagine ChatGPT providing a writing sample that is going to, you know, uh, give us those elements of a personal statement and of a personal, you know, experience in a way that I think would be, you know, helpful to us. And so, you know, but it's it's TBD. You know, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out for this year, and maybe we'll uh, have more have a more formalized policy in the in the coming years. But as of right now, I'm not too concerned. I mean, we know students are googling how to write the best personal statements and getting advice through other means, and so at the end of the day, we really are expecting students to provide a. Uh, an application that is coming from them and, uh, and, and they're certifying that in the application process. But, you know, uh, I'm not too concerned at this point. I've played with it a little bit. I found it to just produce extremely generic, superficial stuff. One of our consultants who actually has a background as a journalist and is a very, very fine writer, she decided to try it. And in order to get it to a point where it 
was actually something specific to her, she had to iterate and iterate and iterate and iterate and give it more and more and more information such that it would have taken her less time to write it on her own. You know, so if you just go to it and let it spit out something, it's not going to be very good to make it good. It might take you as much time or more as if you just wrote it. Right. Right. So, um, anyways. Um, okay. Let's go back to some other questions about admissions in terms of, of applicant background or qualifications. Do you like to see experience in their background, full-time work experience or part-time work, work experience that is closely related to law, like working in a law office or a legal clinic, for example, or something related to policy and politics? Yeah, I think work experience does help a candidate become a stronger candidate in the application process. I'm a huge fan of students deciding to take a little bit of time before they decide to go to law school. The average age here at Texas Law tends to be around 24. And assuming that many graduates will end up graduating around 21 or 22, that means many students are uh, entering law school after at least a couple of years of professional experience or any kind of experience before jumping on the, the law school train. It doesn't have to be legal experience. Of course, that helps underscore why students are pursuing a law school, uh, legal education. Uh, and so from that perspective, it helps, but it's not required, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the law uh, intersects in so many different areas and disciplines. And, and uh, you know, for many candidates, it's not necessary to have legal experience as a prerequisite before deciding to go to law school. But for other students, it might be beneficial to them from the place of, am I really on the right track? Uh, is law school really mm -hmm. something they do? I, you know, I talk to many students who, after doing a legal internship, they're even more excited about going to law school. Equally valuable is when a student says, you know, I did that legal internship and it so was not my jam, right? And that's equally powerful because now the student is informed. They're not sitting preparing for the LSAT blindly and, you know, spending all of this money to submit applications and all of that stuff and really finding their path uh, towards a, a profession that they're going to enjoy, you know, long-term. So from that perspective, you know, if students are weighing whether or not they should pursue um, a gap year or not, uh, to the extent that getting legal experience will help them make that decision on going to law school, I think it's going to be beneficial to them. I also think from the place of employment during law school, yeah. I have found anecdotally that students who have professional experience tend to do well in the hiring process just because in the same way that I think it makes them a better candidate in the application process for law school, it will also make them a better candidate when it comes to hiring for lawyers and, and right. associates. Right. Uh, you think about it, the students are handling people's lives in their most difficult and challenging times. And students who have that professional experience, have an understanding of the way the world works, uh, have developed you know, really those strong interpersonal connection skills, uh, really tend to rise to the, to the top of the hiring pool. That makes sense. That makes complete sense. Just getting back to your point about the value to the applicant of the experience, not even in terms of future employment or anything like that, 20 years ago, taking that gap year was much less common. And if a friend uh, came to me that her daughter called her up one day, she was a student at an Ivy League school, 
and burst into tears. And, you know, it was like, what's the matter? What's going on? And the, and the, I think she was a, a college senior at the time. And she says, I don't know what to do. I'm studying for the LSAT. I'm studying for the GRE. I can't figure out what I want to do. Uh, either I want to go to law school. Or I want to go into an entirely unrelated field. And the mother naturally said, well, you don't have to make a decision this minute. You know, just take a year off. You know, obviously she had her classes. Take it. It's okay. You don't have to go to law school right away. Of course, the kid didn't listen to her. She had to talk to a consultant <laughs> to hear the same thing. But um, so she she got a job at a big Manhattan law firm. And I was talking to my friend, you know, several months later. And I said, uh, how's she doing at the big Manhattan law firm? And she said she quit. She hated it. Yeah. It's a very, very valuable six weeks. <laughs> Invaluable. <laughs> To me, that's not necessarily worst case scenario because everyone has no. their, but, you know, just imagine all of the time, all of the money that has spent towards getting and to, to achieve this one goal and to realize it's not really what you want to do, you know, and yeah. your precious, most precious commodity, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when when I was in college, it was very common to say law school is a good degree for something. It's a good foundation. And school was much less expensive then too, especially pu public schools. But it's, it's a good foundation. I had so many friends whose parents pushed them into law school because it was a good foundation for something. And they never practiced law. They didn't like it. Right. It was right. sad. And then yeah. other people went to law school and were very happy. But- right. The point is, is, try it out first. Try it out first. And you're absolutely right. One of the differences between this generation and the generation of yesteryear is that it is so much more expensive yes. you know, uh, to attend law school, uh, which is another distinctive feature of UT that I failed to mention, which is, you know, our lower tuition price point. But, you know, um, it, it's still despite having a lower tuition price point for the quality of education that you're getting here at, at UT, uh, students are still graduating on average with over $100,000 in debt, you know? Wow, and yeah. that's a pretty penny, you know, to be paying back, uh, particularly at the interest rate that many of the, the loans are at, so. Sure, I, I mean, at the time that I went to graduate school, I was paying per quarter, was on the quarter system, so I had three quarters. I was paying basically three months rent for every year in tuition. You know, that's, um, gosh, anybody be happy to pay that today, even with LA rent. <laughs> so, um, all right, let's get back to UT law. Um, does UT law consider letters from applicants who have something significant to tell you after they submit their applications and before hearing back from you, or perhaps after being waitlisted? Yeah, we welcome any updates uh, from applicants. And so if there's anything uh, material and substantively material uh, that you uh, deemed worthy for the admissions committee to, to know, by all means, just send it to our admissions team and we'll be more than happy to incorporate it into uh, your application. For waitlisted candidates, same thing. Uh, we do limit letters of continuing interest to about three during the waitlist period, but we're pretty clear about uh, the expectations for that. But if, again, there's anything materially ch that would change your application, you're more than welcome to update the admissions committee with an email. Okay, great. Now, you've, you've emphasized a couple of times during our conversation 
that you don't want to just make a decision based on LSAT and GPA or GRE and GPA. Just not, you, you want to look beyond the academics while the academics are important. What other factors are you weighing in addition to the test score and the GPA? I would say leadership comes to mind. Um, you know, we know that our students are not just, just going to be strong and zealous advocates for their clients. They're going to be leaders in their communities. Lawyers play a role in the community that is really grounded in, 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 in leadership. And so that's something that we're looking for. Because we're a public law school, students who've engaged in the community, worked in underserved communities, is also something that we're looking for as well. And you don't have to be, and leadership looks different in, in many respects. I think some, sometimes students equate leadership that they have to be a president of student organization, but that's not necessarily true. You can do all kinds of roles to de and, and demonstrate leadership in, in different ways uh, during college and, and things that you've done in the community. So I'd say that comes up quite a bit. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're also looking for students who are going to enrich their learning environment. So through your own personal experiences, professionally, personally, um, how do those experiences have shaped the way that you view the world? And so we're also interested in, in that. And so those are the couple factors that uh, I think really rise to the top when we are reviewing an application. Okay, great. What is a common mistake that you've seen applicants make during the application process? I mean, you've been doing this for several years at this point. I'm sure you've seen a, that certain patterns recur. <laughs> just a few. Uh, we probably could do a whole, whole another segment on just <laughs> how much time do I have? <laughs> um, I think what comes to mind first is when students try to do a one one size fits all application for every single school. While many law schools have shared missions and you know there are a lot of similarities between institutions, we also have a lot of differences and distinctions as well. And so when you're able to tailor your interest to what a school might be offering, then I think it really has an impact on the admissions committee. So doing a one-size-fits-all, not tailoring in your, your application to the specific school itself, I think is really a missed opportunity. You know, um, you know, I've seen where, you know, students will write about, you know, I'm applying to, to UT law, I'm making this up, but, you know, it's something that we're, we're not necessarily known for, but space law, for example, right? It, you know, sure, we have a lot of classes, but I don't think space law and UT are necessarily equated to each other, right? Right, right. Coming to the table and saying that you're interested in UT and you're applying to UT because of your strong interest in national security law or constitutional law, then that shows the admissions committee that you've taken the step to really research you know, the institution. And so uh, I think tailoring your application certainly uh, is advised. I would say another common mistake I've seen over the years is when students will spend a lot of time talking about an inspiration to go to law school more so than talking about themselves. I've read so many applications where students will talk about, you know, um, an important legal figure or maybe a family member who was a lawyer as their inspiration to go to law school. I've learned more about that person than I've learned about the candidate who's applying to law school. And right. so you 
know, that's a missed opportunity as well, because sure. as I mentioned, you only have two pages to share with the admissions committee everything that's wonderful about you. And so when you spend a page and a half talking about the other person, I'm left wondering, who are you? And why are you applying to law school? So that's another missed uh, opportunity. I can go on. (laughs) (laughs) I think these are excellent. I especially like the last one. I think you're right. I think another one that I've seen creep up uh, over the years is an attempt to be creative or standing now. And I don't know if this is a carryover in the college admissions process where I feel I feel like the college admissions process, you have the ability to answer more fun type questions or be more creative in, in the process uh, than in law school. But you know, law schools are rooted in tradition, right? And the way that we've been doing things have been the same for a number of years. And I don't think the personal statement or the application process is the time in which you should be creative. And so I've seen personal statements written in sort of a, a transcript format. Students have uh, attempted to write, you know, a deposition, if you will, as to why they, you know, want to go to law school. And you just don't know who's going to read your application and how it's going to fall on, you know, uh, on, on that reader. And so I wouldn't advise a student to be creative in that respect. Keep it to, you know, uh, what we're looking for. And we're looking right. for information about your background, your interest your perspective and why do you want to pursue law school? And so this is not the time to be creative. Great. Thank you very much. What would you have liked me to ask you? Oh gosh. Uh, my favorite barbecue spot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What's your favorite barbecue spot? Oh gosh. You know, I'm not getting any plugs here, but Black's barbecue is amazing here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, uh, that aside, uh, with respect to the application process, yeah. Let's see. Um, I think a question that we really haven't talked about uh, is about financial aid. You know, and scholarship. What what kind of financial aid and scholarships are available at Texas Law? Yeah, we're we're pretty generous when it comes to our scholarship giving, in part because we recognize the cost of. Uh, legal education is rising and rising and rising. And one of the things that we've been so proud of is being able to keep our tuition uh, pretty much the same uh, since I've been here. So wow. there's no increase in terms of the tuition over the last you know five years. Uh, That's amazing. It's been extraordinary. Uh, I hope no one on the Board of Regents listens to this, but... <laughs> But, you know, the institution and the university is committed to providing access to education in general. So uh, I say that in jest, but uh, really, I think that is something that we're quite proud of. And of course, uh, I have no guarantee of whether that will remain the same when someone is listening to this, but don't think what will change is our commitment to ensuring that we continue to provide students with uh, robust scholarships uh, to ensure that they have a livelihood after graduation. We know that uh, loan debt can be oftentimes insurmountable for a lot of students. Many of students who've had to take out loans as an undergrad to get through you know, their primary education. And, and so we really try to do our best to, to offset that by providing robust scholarships. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for raising that. 
Dean Lay, I think we're almost out of time. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insider perspective. Where can listeners learn more about Texas law? Oh, we welcome students to uh, visit us on our website at law.utexas.edu. And if you have any questions or if you'd like to uh, set up uh, an appointment and a meeting with an admissions representative, you can email us at admissions at law.utexas.edu. Thank you so much, Linda. It's been a pleasure been a pleasure for me too. Thank you listeners also for joining me for this wonderful interview with Dean Matthew Lay, Assistant Dean for Admissions and Financial Aid at UT School of Law. We'll include links in the show notes at accepted.com slash 546 to UT Law's website, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to listeners. Quick reminder, don't miss the Law School Admissions Quiz. Find out if you're really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at accepted.com slash law dash quiz today. This is Admissions Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.